Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with Zenus. Uh, our guest today is uh, actually a member of our congregation here at Water of Life. Uh, he's also uh, a teacher that uh, taught both of us at the seminary, is that right? That is right. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm only going to say one other thing in introducing him, and that was a compliment that I often think of that was paid to him. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but uh, another great teacher I love, uh, Professor Deutschlander, said, uh, if Professor Brug has not thought of it, it's probably not worth thinking about. <laughs> so uh, with no further introduction, uh, welcome to our podcast. Well, glad to be here. So, John, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is whether it's the pastors that we're calling to serve as my associate or just in general. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot the the quiz that I just uh, gave him. Uh, so do you happen to know the biblical reference of the Z name that I used to address or that I called him? Zenith? Z- Zenas. Z-E-N-A-S. No, Zenith. I guess he hadn't oh, no. thought of it. Ooh, I... Uh, that did, that backfired. Uh, he was he was the lawyer who made a journey with Apollos that Paul mentioned in Titus three thirteen. Okay, spelled with an X or a Z? With a Z. Z. Yeah, that was right on the tip of my tongue. I'm sorry, I didn't. Get you, I should have asked you. Yeah. Who's Zenus? Yeah, it was A and Z, Apollos and Zenus. Oh, there you go. Yeah, uh, but one of the things, John, when I talk to pastors that we've called to serve as my associate or just in general. Uh, pastors uh, learning that I serve as your pastor, and then they ask, well, does Professor Brug sit there with his finger up on his cheek and his chin resting in his hand like you would do in the classroom at the seminary when we had to be up in front of the class and you were watching us? And I said, no, usually he's just shaking his head (laughs) at me preaching. Uh, But they wonder, well, how is it to preach to Professor Bruce? It is perfectly fine. It's one of the things that I learned about you is that it is nerve-wracking because you sit like five pews from the pulpit right in front of me, and but I've learned most of the time you have your eyes closed. Yeah, I have glare problems, so oh. I, never, I have to not get glared in the light. Oh, I thought you were just concentrating cuz no, then made, it, then made I tell him it makes me nervous though when your eyes are open. I go, oh shoot, <laughs> what did I say wrong now? <laughs> well, I, I had a student once who was a really good student in the end, but the first day he came in class and he sat in the front seat. And I had never had him before and he had his eyes closed the whole class. And then if I said something that was outrageous, then his eye his eyes would open. So I knew, I, I he was right ninety nines and hundreds. So I said, "Well, it's okay if his eyes are closed." But or, or sometimes like one eye would pop open, and then if two eyes would pop open, I knew he was going to challenge what I had said. And if his eyes closed again, then I knew he was at least semi persuaded. So he was John was really watching you, Jeremy. I guess yeah yeah. So. John, you've celebrated this year, right? Fifty years in the yeah. ministry. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is amazing. Because I've I've just hit twenty five. Jeremy, do you know how long you've been in the ministry? Uh, over a decade. <laughs> right. So, how many years have you spent at the seminary? About thirty two. 
before, I, no, I've been in the last seven years when I've been theoretically retired, I've been teaching and I'm teaching this summer, but about 32 years from 1983 until uh, seven years ago. So for our listeners, we talked about that. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time this, this time on the gospel or the epistle lesson just because we have Professor Brug here and he's got such a wealth of knowledge on a lot of different subjects. So we're going to talk about uh, your time at the seminary with the EHV, archaeology, and so forth. So what's it like training young men for the ministry in the seminary? Well, it's very enjoyable because it's they're all highly motivated. You know, you're teaching ninth grade English at Shoreland or something, and even maybe ninth grade German. Not everybody in the class is totally with you and motivated. So I think that's the main thing. The other thing is, it's really a joy to go out and see them. You know, you go just about everywhere. I'm going to do a conference in Montana in two weeks, and probably almost everybody there will be somebody that I had in class. So that's kind of an enjoyable part of it. And to get them on, and there were some... Were, you're especially happy if there was somebody for whom it was really a struggle. And then, you know, they persevered, and maybe academics weren't their forte, but they were had a very pastoral heart. Or sometimes somebody that, you know, maybe wasn't really applying themselves. I won't name them, of course, but I had one student. I was out at a pastor's conference, and he came to me and said, Professor Brug, I bet, I bet you'll never forget that talk we had in the library together. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what he was talking about. It was maybe 15 years in the past. He said, yeah, when you took me to the library and you sat me down and said... We got a simple situation here. It's time for you to shape up or ship out. <laughs> I didn't think that I said it that would be quite the way I said it, but that's what he heard. And he said, boy, those words stung. But he said, I realized it was 100% true. And if I was serious about being a pastor, it was time to shape up or ship out because souls are at stake here. So I think seeing guys work is probably the, most memorable thing, more so than anything that happened in the classroom, although there are many memories there, too. What kind of, what kind of classes did you teach at the seminary? So kind of explain to our listeners, because Jeremy and I were there you know, for three, three years, you know, for our listeners that you know, we have our first two years, then we go off and we're vicars and we think we know everything. Then we come back and we realize we know nothing and we've got to cram it all in our senior year. So what did you teach? What kind of classes and subjects? Well, really, of the biblical courses, I taught a lot of them because the first two years when I came, Professor Becker had just died. And though my doctorate was in Hebrew, they needed somebody to teach the New Testament in Greek. So for about five years, I taught uh, pretty much the whole New Testament in Greek. I didn't really teach you know, the in-depth courses like Romans and stuff like that. Then I've taught all of the Old Testament a lot. That's half of it is each year. I taught the Psalms, especially in Hebrew. And I thought taught dogmatics or doctrine, which is a two-year course. It used to be five days a week. I think it's less now. And then I taught all kinds of odd things like archaeology and even uh, ancient inscriptions and stuff that weren't mandatory but were electives. That was one that uh, I took was over the, what did they call it, winter end? Yeah. 
there was a winterim course and so why don't you, why don't you explain what the winterim and, and the summer courses are? well I, yeah i didn't i didn't do many well i guess i did the one summer yeah. quarter course i did with uh, uh the only summer quarter course i did was the um islam course uh i won't say the name of it over the air because you yeah. said not to publicize that uh but uh, no, winterim is a, a kind of in between the semesters, an opportunity to take some just, I guess, for lack of a better word, oddball classes of things that you might be interested in. Like one time, um, uh, the professor Tiefel offered one on Bach. You don't really get to study Bach much, but he's a very influential and Lutheran figure. Uh, well, the one that I took was with. Uh, Dr. Brug, and uh, it was on the ancient inscriptions. And what he did was he made a top 10 list. Um, it, it was literally standing room only in the class. You, you, there were so many people, and we, they even moved us to a bigger room, but we couldn't all fit in that room, uh, barely. And it was uh, a top 10 list that he made to try and get students to take this class. Top 10 reasons to take ancient inscriptions. And the one that I remember was uh, that you get an opportunity to translate the medallion from Indiana Jones and the Ark, uh, the Lost Ark. Yep, that was kind of the finale. So that reminds me of it's a good segue, Jeremy. That I still remember the two serm- the first two sermons I preached when John and his wife Irene came to our church at Epiphany at the time, uh, and they were, be- and I remember them because of the subject matter, obviously the Bible, but the first one was Christmas Day. And the theme of the sermon was God in a box. But my opening illustration was Indiana Jones and them carrying the the Nazis and the scientists, the archaeologists, taking the lid off and then God in a box melting their faces off. (laughs) And then the second one was the summer. It was... Uh, I, every year, I've for 25 years, I've been doing a, call, a camp during the summer called training camp for third through ninth graders, and the theme that year was on superheroes. So in the sermon, I was talking about Spider-Man being a Lutheran because of his guilt, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, the first two sermons that my former dogmatics <laughs> professor heard was about Spider-Man and Jesus, and... God in a box with Indiana Jones. Well, he used that for advertising his uh, ancient inscriptions class. So, all right, I didn't know he was a big Indiana Jones fan. Indiana Jones is an archaeologist, so yeah. there you go. So, let's talk about some archaeology then. So, what kind of things have you done with in the field of archaeology? Well, I worked on let's see, one, two, three excavations. So one was I was still a parish pastor, and we made a trip there. One when I was Israel. Two times I went on trips with the seminary, so I guess four excavations. We always had a good policy, I thought, in those days at the seminary, is we only excavated, these are in summer, of course, we only excavated on beaches. And so we were ne- often we were right on the beach, and never were we more than about a mile or two from the beach. As far as what I found most interesting, I guess, of personal things is I found a skeleton of a woman hmm. that it was because it was in the coastal plain. We named her Delilah. And of all the graves that had been excavated, that was the first one where the skeleton of the person was still there. And so, you you know, you do it with little dental picks and, and brushes and that. 
did a lot of archaeological studying, of course. We lived in Israel for a semester when I was finishing my degree. So pretty much all the major sites and museums and everything we all went to. We kind of divide time. I could go to museums and Irene and Paul could go to the beach. So that was the selling point was we're going to be excavating, but it'll be by a beach. So you'll like yeah. to come along. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've I've got a question. It's going to take a little setup here, but uh, here goes. So uh, one of the things that always amazed us about you at the seminary is a lot of times uh, the uh, professors that we have in college and seminary uh, who are just these brilliant minds when it comes to the languages and uh, uh, studying the Bible and ancient culture, uh, but you somehow managed to stay on top of uh, pop culture uh, as well. And and the example I give is, I, I'll always remember one day, I had you for, I didn't have you for dog, but I had you for Isagogic's Old Testament. Right, and, so what is Isagogic's? Uh, it is the, uh, it's uh, just a brief survey overlook of the Old Testament. Thank you. And um, uh, I remember one day in class, you started talking about uh, something that had happened as a follow-up on an episode of The Bachelor and and my wife had just been watching that same exact episode last night, and I thought, man, not only does he know languages and everything else, but he keeps up on sports, he keeps up on uh, pop culture, and uh, so my question is, what is your best advice for pastors to find a good balance between you know not being a slave of the culture, but also uh, not being so buried in the books that you're not in touch with society at all. Yeah, well, you can keep up on a lot of the programs and that without actually watching them. And a lot of the movies, you don't have to watch them, especially if they're not such good movies. You know, you can comment about it was a bad movie, and somebody say, if you watched it, and I'd say, well, if somebody serves a plate of garbage, you don't have to eat the whole plate to know it's garbage. <laughs> you can find that out pretty quick. And so... I think the main thing is getting out with people. Sometimes I know you guys are kind of involved in sports. Through sports, you meet a lot of people. Now it's not as easy to go yard to yard on a Saturday as it used to be. But if I was always in a small community, so people could see you around town. And I think that's the main thing, if people know that you're out and around. Yeah, it's a little harder when you're in a big town like Racine. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's one of the things that I've said, too, when people have questioned whether I'm coaching, I used to coach Rasa, which is a uh, rec league uh, and so forth, just to be able to uh, be out in the community. In fact, the other day I was standing next to the dad of one of the daughters on my daughter's uh, Shoreland varsity soccer team. Well, I met them when their son was on our Rasa soccer team when they're son Eddie was like four or five playing with my daughter Lydia and Maddie who's from our church and school too but I think that because of the connection with me just coaching they learned about the Wisconsin Senate because they're not Wisconsin Senate even today but they brought their child to Trinity Lutheran Church and School in Caledonia they found out about Shoreland they love it and so forth all because of the pastor being out in the community well, my wife, Irene, for example, we just had one child at that time. Paul was young, but there were plenty of babysitters. She was a dispatcher for the ambulance and the volunteer fire department. You know, she had a shift. And so through that, she met a lot of people, too. 
I like that uh, saying about the plate of garbage. I, I'm going to have to remember that. I, the other one I always remember that you gave me was, uh, or you gave all of us was, uh, people talk so much about being open-minded and how it's so good to be open-minded. And you said, uh, being having an open mind is a lot like having an open mouth. You should only keep it open long enough until you find something good to to bite down on and chew. So, John, how many languages do you know? Well, I don't know what you'd say no. I speak English. You know, I was somewhat capable in Russian and Swedish when we lived in those areas and with Hebrew when we lived there. I don't think you can ever really say you know a language unless you live in it for at least a year or maybe two so I've probably studied to a first-year level. I probably have uh, studied 20-some. Oh, my. But I'm trying to throw a lot of them overboard now. You don't want too much clutter. So, <laughs> you, didn't, I, I heard a rumor, and you, maybe you can confirm this, that uh, didn't you one time decide I, that you wanted to learn Hawaiian just so you could keep your language skills sharp? No, we were going to go to Hawaii, and so I thought you can't go to Hawaii if you don't study Hawaiian. So I did about a... a I'd say, you know, first level year Hawaiian conversation and that. And sometimes when I was exercising in the uh, weight room, I would have Hawaiian on. And so the students kind of made, made a joke of it a little bit like this inscriptions course. When they brought the new students in for a kind of a welcome of sorts in the spring, I was always in the gym dressed Hawaiian and there were other students in there dressed Hawaiian and we would be stuck it was all of course set up of course they knew what questions I was going to ask them and it was all set up of course and they I take the new students around and you know prospective students and tell them well next year one of the things you can do is you you can join the Hawaiian evangelism group and you'll get training in Hawaiian and work out in the weight room too yeah well and and that makes me remember when I was at the seminary our class thought that you were learning Swedish at the time by listening to your Walkman when you were exercising or walking or running around the campus. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, that wasn't the major part of it, but as long as I was walking, I did that. Yeah, I, so I, I visited Sweden every year for 12 years, so I've probably been there 20 times now, maybe a total time of two years actually being on the ground there. And so Swedish isn't such a hard language for Americans, it's between English and German. So why were you going to Sweden so many times? Because we had uh, sister churches there that had separated out from the state church, and they had a lot of issues and difficulties in a very unchristian society. And so I would sometimes visit every congregation, which is over an area like California. I wouldn't go to Norway and Finland every year. But then I also taught classes for their seminary students. Usually those were like two two week classes. You know, it was never there a long time at one time. So why is it important, John, for pastors who might be listening to the podcast or pastors' wives to encourage their husbands to continue their education at winterum and summer quarter and so forth? Whether you're teaching the courses or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of it is of course review. The more you know, the more you forget, you know that old story. And so you got to really do a lot of work to just stay where you were when you left the seminary without adding anything new. So that'd be one of the main things. You got to have a real organized program, like for reading your whole Bible and, you know, pulling out your notes, kind of have a calendar, which tells you, well, I should pull these notes out now. I should pull these notes out. And of course, there's many advances in all areas. So 
if you didn't want to learn any more than you knew when you left the seminary, you still have a lot of work just to, to stay where you were. And of course, through your preaching and teaching, you, you know, keep doing that automatically, but uh, you maybe don't preach too many sermons on Ezekiel or Song of Songs or something, and so you have to do something to keep up on those books. Well, wouldn't it be fair to compare it to uh, the medical profession that when you're working with people's bodies, um, you don't want to be using techniques that were from, you know, 100 years ago, and you want to keep up to speed on uh, the latest developments in medicine, and it's just the same with uh, doctors of people's souls. Yeah, and and, and as far as the maintenance, besides the new stuff, uh, the better piano player you are, it, it's not that you practice less. You have to practice more. I don't imagine I could figure out how many free throws Michael Jordan shot, <laughs> even per day, you mm-hmm. know. It's, it's true of every profession, but we're, we have a more valuable commodity, the word. Right. And I think of like our homiletics course, which is learning how to preach. And, you know, we learned back then, I don't know, Jeremy, did they teach you this too, of your theme and then your one or two parts? That was the basic. Yeah, format, that was the basics. Yeah. I don't know if that's what they still teach today, but it didn't take me very long till I got out into the ministry and it was, that's... For me, that's kind of a boring style. But the key is we learn the basics, and then from the basics you can make it your own. But I I really appreciated then having uh, Pastor uh, Rich Gergel, who was my pastor at Davis Star in Jackson, Wisconsin, who is then a seminary professor and now MLC, Martin Luther College president, him coming to our conference to talk about preaching, to brush us up as preachers who've been out decades and still there's always different ways, you know, to be able to reach, uh, to reach people. Because when I was here, I just finished, you know, we're recording this on Good Friday afternoon after our one o'clock service and we had our Wisconsin Lutheran School students singing and our church president was in the office on Monday when I was writing the sermon. He said, oh, pastor, just take a sermon from a decade ago and just brush it off. And I said, Jeff, I've got to write this for not just the adults, but for the 30 to 50 kids that are going to be here. And that's why I wrote it in a much simpler form than, than I usually do, because I knew that half of the congregation was going to be kids, and you have to keep that alive. Yeah, and the way... It's good to start with a simple having a couple points. They don't always have to be obvious. In your house, you don't have to see the plan of the plumbing, but it's got to be there. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to see it. Sometimes I've heard guys say, part one, yeah. you know, wait <laughs> once a year, part two. I think the main thing is that you ha- people can't grab everything on one trip through, that you have a couple main points and that you know what they are sometimes you can ask them to pick them out and you only tell them at the end but you you need to to have a focus that you've got a couple points you're trying to bring home and how obvious you make them I think there's lots of different ways to do that if you are an organized thoughtful person trying to deliver a message there is an outline there whether you realize it or not Uh, sometimes I required students to have a uh, outline for their, well, I'll call them term papers, and somebody forget, and he'd say, there's got to be an outline in there somewhere, and so, <laughs> and so he wrote it first, Oh, 
and then figured out what the outline was and maybe it made them tidy things up a little bit. But if you're, if you're a careful speaker trying to deliver a message, there is some organization there. There needs to be for it to be effective. But it doesn't always have to be on the outside of, of the display. The pump, pump, plumbing doesn't have to be visible outside the building unless it's a weird building in Paris or something like that. But there has to be some organization. Right. And that's, and, and I appreciate that because I think that's my preaching style is here's the point, but I'm going to get to it and then bring it back and, at the end. But it's one big point being led through as opposed to like one, two, three yeah. points and saying these are the points is I'd rather have the people go home with that main theme of, you know, like the theme today of a garden of, of Golgotha, you know, bringing it in at the beginning throw it in the middle, bring in that illusion of a garden. And today, in talking about the garden, and I had written this already on Monday of a garden that was dark and dismal and so forth, and then I happened to read uh, for our uh, early childhood campus, which is preschool through second graders, and the first grade asked me to read a chapter of The Secret Garden. And the teacher asked, have you ever read this, Pastor? I said, I think that's a chick book, so no, I haven't <laughs> I haven't read that. Uh, but I read it, and what was interesting is the kids were telling me all about it. They were really in this book, and it was a book. It was a garden that had been neglected for a decade, and there was a secret. And there, were, she was trying to marry the main character, was trying to bring it back, and so I was able to use that, uh, you know, just introduce the secret garden in the introduction, and so the kid, hopefully. The kids picked up on that, the kids that have read that book. So you mentioned that we're recording this on Good Friday. I just have to ask you, Michael, uh, do you have plans or have you already, since it's Good Friday, uh, either watched or listened to a recording of uh, either the St. Matthew or the St. John Passion by J.S. Bach? I have not, because I haven't taken a summer quarter with Professor Tiefel. Oh, okay. Well, I just want to point out that... um, you got me to uh, see The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett. Okay. Uh, and uh, I ended up very much enjoying both of those. So uh, now, now it's your... on Matthew. Either either the St. Matthew or the St. John Passion. All right, that's written down. Uh, there, there are quite a few good performances out there. And the same thing, most people wrongly think that the Hallelujah Chorus is Christmas. It's really, oh, yeah. it's really more the passion. If you do the whole setting of it, it's really about the passion. Handle, yeah. But talking about the passion, uh, my daughter, Belle, who's my youngest daughter, she's a sophomore at Shoreland, and she was talking that in her religion class, they were watching The Passion of the Christ and how so she had no idea how brutal it was. Yeah. And the girls, she said the girls just covered their faces because they could not handle that and I remember showing it to my grade schoolers. I got permission from the parents because this is an R-rated movie because of the violence. And you know they're eighth graders; they're goofing around. But I remember distinctly that when they saw the scourging, those boys were silent, stone cold silent. Some of them were weeping. That is a brutal movie. But that's something I encourage people to do too. Is you know, listen to J.S. Bach, but also watch The Passion of the Christ. Yeah, and I see. I think they see that angle of it, which we, we kind of have a sanitized view or something. And yet what it's kind of striking to me, unlike that, you know, very traditional Catholic approach to suffering, the Passion accounts 
mention the things, but they don't try to stir up a lot of sympathy for Christ. They try to stir up what love through all his actions ran. It, it, it wasn't important to them to describe the hammer blows and everything. The, their focus was really on his love. And, and isn't that the point of why Jesus told the women on the way out to the cross, don't weep for me, weep for yourself. The, this isn't about feeling sorry for me. Um, I was going to ask you, because, and you bring that up, I haven't seen it. I, oh, okay. I have not yet watched it. I don't know if I want to or not. But what I've heard is uh, that it, it, it maybe, it, I, I think somewhere I heard like medical experts or doctors have said the human body does not even contain as much blood as portrayed yeah. as pouring out. Yeah. Um, is, is, it, is it over the top in your opinion or is it I, I think accurate? it is because it's kind of the Catholic idea that we join in Christ's suffering. Mm-hmm. And I was at a, I think it's a good movie to watch and people should watch it, but they should understand it's a movie that everybody kind of sees through their own eyes. A Lutheran sees it through Lutheran eyes. Hmm. A Roman Catholic sees it through Mary being covered with blood. And they see the Stations of the Cross and Veronica and all that. Um, Jews see it as how much Christians hate Jews. You know, and they're trying to put us, bring us under persecution. I was at a debate at the Archaeology Society where they were discussing it, mainly because a lot of the Jewish people were really upset about it, you know. And, and the, the person that really hated the movie was the liberal Catholic, because he thought it gave Catholic people a bad image of Catholicism. And the, the very conservative Catholic, it was those two who were battling each other about the movie. And the liberal Catholic asked the conservative Catholic who did the Aramaic, well, why would you work for somebody like Mel Gibson? He's such a reprobate. And he said, well, he pays fairly handsomely. <laughs> and then I had a turn to speak, and I, I said, especially for the Jewish people, I didn't address it to them. But when evangelical Christians hear it, they don't think about what Jews were doing on that day. They think about their sins and, and sins for the whole world. And I said, for example, at the beginning, you see from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And, you know, that. Our sins deserve God's wrath. And I said, to, to me, that was the theme of the movie, Isaiah 53. Yep. And the little Catholic was horrified. He said, no, no. How could you think that was the theme of the movie? The theme of the movie was when Mary dipped her hands in the blood and put the blood on her face. And, and she said, I make all things new. That was, the theme, that was the theme of the movie. So I think a lot of people see it through their own eyes. And then a very uh, traditional, respected Jewish translator um, got up after me and he said, if I understand what he's saying correctly, he's saying the point of the movie is that a holy God hates sin and cannot <laughs> abide by it. He said, is the, is, do I understand you correctly? And he said, and I said, yes. And he said, well, then you and I are in agreement on that. Okay. Unfortunately, probably the solution to that at this point, we weren't in agreement. But he could see, yes, a holy God hates sin. Yeah, well, I remember in the past, because uh, this is one of the reasons I don't <clears throat> use the old sermons for a long time ago, because I've gotten hopefully a lot better over the years. And one of the things that I remember... A really focused one year on the suffering. It was very much like the passion of the Christ that I, but I verbally, 
And I, I remember two mothers getting up and leaving, just describing the pain. But today, the way I described it was that, uh, you know, the agony of Christ on the cross. And I said, surely it hurt to have nails in the hands and a crown of thorns on the brow and your back torn up from the scourging. But the real agony was the anger of God, his wrath over sins. And, and that's what you know, you're saying, John, yeah. is that's what the gospel writers are, are bringing out. So we've now been uh, chit-chatting for 32 minutes. Uh, is it okay if I uh, read Psalm 118? That would be fantastic. And, and then because we're going to—so what we're doing here is usually we focus on the gospel lesson or the epistle lesson, but— you're going to have your pastor preaching on First Corinthians 15 or the gospel lesson, but yeah, I'm, because I'm, I'm preaching on the gospel tomorrow for or, yeah, and so am I. So, but because we have Doctor Brug here, who happens to have written the People's Bible mm-hmm. on the Psalms, we figured, hey, let's look at Psalm 118, the Psalm for this Easter Sunday. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel say, yes, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say now, his, yes, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say now, yes, his mercy endures forever. Under pressure I cried to the Lord, the Lord answered me. He set me in a wide open space. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can people do to me? The Lord who is with me is my helper, So I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in human benefactors. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, but they were extinguished as quickly as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. You pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. My strength and song is the Lord, and he has become salvation for me. Loud shouts of victory are heard in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord has done a mighty deed. The right hand of the Lord is lifted high. The right hand of the Lord has done a mighty deed. I will not die, no, I will live, and I will proclaim the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not handed me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter them. I will give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate to the Lord. The righteous enter it. I will give you thanks because you answered me, and you have become salvation for me. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, please save us now. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he makes light shine on us. Bind the festival with branches as far as the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So, John, I've got the question is, why this psalm? For Easter Sunday? Well, it actually isn't a good choice for Easter Sunday so much as it is the psalm for Holy Week. A pastor can preach every one of his sermons from Palm Sunday to Easter 
on parts of Psalm 118. Being a teacher, I'm going to give your listeners some homework. When they read Psalm 118, they should pick out which verses you should preach on next year for Palm Sunday, which ones for Monday, Thursday, which ones for Good Friday, and which ones for Easter. And you, of course, you, you'll recognize Hosanna is in there, so that's a pretty obvious one. And you've got other ones about joy and uh, coming into life. Luther wrote an Easter composition based on this psalm. It was the verse about... Uh, I shall not die but live. Luther based his Easter composition on that. So it's it's a great psalm for all of the year. And, and we usually don't do the whole psalm. We do parts of it. But every week, for the whole week, there's, there's something about it. And so um, that would be one thing. I could give him even just a little bit more homework. Since I'm retired, I don't get to, get to give people homework very much. Psalms 113 to 118 are what we'd call the Holy Week Psalms for Israel that were associated with the Passover. Every psalm from 113 to 118, they thought was a Passover, Easter in our term, Pesach Easter psalm. It's very obvious there's mentions of the Exodus in there. I think that's 114. Um, that we shouldn't take too much glory of ourselves, that we're so proud that we're celebrating Easter and everything, but that not unto us. Unto on, on us, O Lord. 115. So a very good thing to do is to read these psalms through Holy Week. You can still do it retroactively now and see how it covers not just Easter, but the whole Passion. In some ways, we think of Psalm 22, the suffering, as the Passion Psalm, and it has humiliation and exaltation just like this. But this is really a Passion Psalm too, a Holy Week Psalm. So you can fit the whole thing in there. I I have a bunch of questions. There was a time in my life when, uh, actually it was my vicar year, uh, I memorized this because uh, Luther said this was his psalm. He said, this is mine, and I, yeah. I just feel very strongly about it. And so I thought, well, this might be worth memorizing. Now i got to do it with the EHV. i got to redo it. But um, th- Well, some... no, you could do it with the Hebrew text. <laughs> <laughs> we used to read it responsibly in class because it's a very powerful Hebrew text. The, the, so get, you you can memorize one part, and Pastor Zion can memorize the other part, and then you can perform. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you, you don't can, you don't think that would be a good episode? We say that back can, and forth to each do, other. You can do my half too. Oh, I'll do your half too. Uh, so uh, there's a bunch of questions I have. I, I'll try not to take up the whole time with it, but um, uh, w- one of them was um, uh, why the choice in verse nine for uh, talking about human benefact, I, I think originally it was princes. Yeah. Uh, better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. Um, human benefactors almost seems like a, kind of a more, more complex uh, thought for people to grasp. Why, why the choice of that there? So, so before you answer that, John, just for our listeners, so John is the what, general editor yeah. of the... Uh, of the EHV. So I'm challenging him right now is if, in case you're wondering, I'm, there you go. I apologize. I think the idea of, of benefactors is more than just rulers. Although in those days, most of the benefactors were rulers because they were the ones that had the money. But I think a benefactor is somebody that has been blessed by God who is willing to share his blessings. I think Boaz is an obvious benefactor, a guy who wanted to use his blessings not just for himself, but for other people. That's great. But what he's saying here is 
even the benefactors finally couldn't do anything for Jesus on Good Friday. It was only the Lord's delivery. And so even the benefactors, it's not just that the bad people are going to let you down. The good people, the best people, they still aren't enough. Before you ask your question, again, we'll just kind of bring in some of the general editor work of the EHV. So with a word like that of benefactor instead of princess, who who comes up with that? Is that, I mean, obviously it's from the Hebrew, but it's translated one way in the NIV. Is it the, the pastor that you've asked to translate it first, or is it you as a general editor or so forth? It may be anything in between there. It may be we keep the word that the first translator did. At least 10 people read each translation. Somebody may have suggested a different word. We still get, are getting suggestions now, which I'm working in the process of working through right now. So finally, if it's something that there's not agreement on, we would finally take it to the editorial board. Um, usually it didn't come to that because I could tell this would be acceptable. If it was something that was kind of controversial, we'd have the editorial board maybe make a, a decision on it. Now we'll do that when we make revisions now too, that I and the committee will give an opinion about the ch- suggestions, but finally the editorial board will approve them. I think with one or the both of you maybe at uh, the Shoreland 50th anniversary celebration uh, where they had the, were either of you at that? I was not. Yeah. You, you, were, you were or were not? I thought that the 50th, but I was I was thinking I was thinking of this. They had this recent Hall of Fame thing. Or that, something. that was it. That oh, was it. Yeah. The Hall of Fame. Yeah. So that I was just thinking of um, Charles and Catherine Heidi, uh, that they would be. You you would you would say well, well what, that's a prince of a guy. Yeah. Uh, somebody who is supportive of the high school and uh, has blessings from God to support that type of a thing, and that's kind of the human benefactor here, isn't it? Yeah. It's a wider term, yeah. Um, uh, another one I had was, uh, oh, the, the one in verse 27, then that is, there's all kinds of choices you could go with I, from what I've studied. Uh, the Lord is God, he makes his light shine on us. Bind the festival with branches as far as the horns of the altar. Um, I've seen that that could be something about making a procession up to the altar uh, I've seen it making references to Palm Sunday and the branches there, uh, but but there could be the thing that is offered on the altar. What are all the options, and why did you pick this one? Yeah, well, it'd be good to read the the note in the in the study Bible. The reason is that it's a very difficult, and you can't verse and you can't say for sure. The procession in the temple did not go to the altar; only the priests went to the altar. So I think it, as far as the horns of the altar bind the festival with branches, they took the flowers and stuff, but the main processions with branches was not at Passover, it was at the fall festival, tabernacles or whatever you, you would like to call it. And so it's, it's, it seems to say that this is the culmination of, the, of the, the feast, but the lay people didn't actually go to the altar themselves, but decorate with branches they had the palm branches, but the main time the Jews had the palm branches was in the fall, not in the spring. And so um, they could probably use this psalm in the fall and in the spring. So for our listeners, what is the horns of the altar? Well, in the 
you know, there's a lot of pictures of this in the study Bible. The altar had projections at each corner. The, the temple altar, of course, was a huge platform. It wasn't like, you know, the altars we see. And so they're, 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 a little, they're just a little triangular. We can say for sure what they looked like because a lot of these altars survive. The little ones, not the temple altars. And so it's just a corner projection of each corner. So it would be decorate the altar all the way around. And then you would, would there be tying? You would, were they for tying the sacrifice down? No, I think by the time the sacrifice reached the altar, it was meat. That's why I said it can't be a procession to the altar. The lay mm. people could bring it and they did the stuff at the gate, but the, the assisting preach had the, everything laid out for the sacrifice, mm. and then the priest could take it. So the people could not literally have processed to the horns of the altar as lay people. So I, I think what it means is celebrate the feast with the beauty that it deserves. Now, sometimes, I don't know if there's Jewish pictures of this, but in, in that culture of the time, sometimes when they were taking like bulls to the temple to sacrifice them or something, they would adorn them with a wreath or a flower. We don't have a specific statement of that, I don't think, from uh, the Bible, per se. But we go into it in some detail in the note of the study Bible about that. But it's a difficult, it's a difficult, very difficult verse. And I think of the horns of the altar because for our Wednesdays in Lent, one of the churches that I preached at, thankfully I knew this ahead of time because the pastor didn't say anything, is they don't have a lectern for doing the scripture readings. But I know from that pastor that on one side of the altar, he would stand to do the scripture readings, the Old Testament epistle, and then from the other side of the altar, the horn of the altar, then he's doing the gospel lesson. So at least I knew that going in, because otherwise I would have been lost of where am I, where am I supposed to be standing for the, the readings. But that's for our listeners. It's if, the corner. Yeah, the corner of the altar. Uh, uh, one, and, one more? Well, let me, let oh, me go before ahead. you get in, with the processional, uh, as you're talking about the processional here, I just talked about this in our children's devotion with our children, but I was really honestly talking to the adults because we have a processional cross at both campuses. The Caledonia campus, we had a gentleman make one for us. So it's the very first time in the 45 years history of that church that they're using a processional cross. And I get to use it for the second time for Easter Sunday. And I explained that the processional cross is that when we first used it maybe 10 years ago at Epiphany, the sermon theme I preached on for Pentecost was that we are Catholic Lutherans with a small c, and that uh, I think a lot of our members at the time would have thought, well, this is what Roman Catholics do, carry a cross and follow behind. Uh, But Palm Sunday, when I did this devotion with the children, the kids were following behind with their palms. They were processing behind, and I said, no, we're, why do we let all the, all the good stuff go to the Roman Catholics? You know, Catholic, small c, Christian, that we want to be processing, lifting high the cross of Christ. I just want to bring that up as we're talking about processions. Yeah, well, I would say most of this stuff wasn't invented by the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. They weren't really the Roman Catholic Church until the Pope came out into the open and, and ruled in Rome. So a lot of these things, 
are part of the heritage of the whole church. So by the Catholic Church here, we're including the Eastern Church and others, not, not really the Roman Catholics. If it is true that on the Palm Sun, not on Palm Sunday, on Monday Thursday, if Jesus and his disciples were following the same order of hymns for the day that that uh, became enshrined in the tradition, it said. Remember, it said they they sang a psalm and went out to the Gethsemane. If they were following the same order, Psalm one eighteen would have been the last psalm that Jesus and the disciples sang together. Uh, one thing as I, you know, when you, when you memorize scripture, the Holy Spirit just really buries some treasures deep in your heart. Um, but uh, also I have a sinful flesh, and so I, I struggle with some things. And uh, one of them is when uh, you, you hear in verses uh, 18, 17 and 18, I will not die, no, I will live. Uh, and then later on, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not handed me over to death. Um, if I were a negative critic of the Bible, um, I, I would almost say at a, a verse like that, how can that be a, a prediction about the Christ? Because if Jesus is the Christ, then uh, this says that the Christ didn't die uh, or he, he, you know, how would you, if, if you get all muddled up in your brain about stuff like that, uh, what, is, what does that mean? Well, in a certain sense, God the Father didn't hand him over. Jesus gave himself into death. But it's the same thing as in the, in the other great messianic psalm, you will not leave me, the old King James said, you will not leave my soul in hell, but that isn't right. You will not leave me in the grave. So that's already in the prophecies that Jesus willingly died, but he wasn't abandoned to death, and he knew that he wasn't abandoned to death. This, incidentally, is the section that Luther used for his composition. Yeah, the I will not die but live. That and that was even uh, in some renditions part of his seal, right? The V I V I T. He li- He lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we could even say, well, what about uh, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Right. Well, your body is going to die, but you will never die. Again, uh, the psalm for this Sunday then is. Psalm 118, and if your church is is using the hymnal, the new Christian worship uh, hymnal, then uh, it's it's talking about the Christ as the cornerstone, which is fine, and it's more generic. But uh, if your congregation also purchased the Christian worship Psalter, there's a number of different psalms in there, uh, which are a little more specific. So Psalm 118a is, this is the day the Lord has made, and so... Uh, let us rejoice and be glad. And then 118b is the Irish Alleluia. Uh, and then 118c is the Festival Alleluia. 118d is This is a Day. 118e, Let Us Rejoice. And then you get into some of the specific Easter Psalms. Uh, 118f, I will not die but live, and then 118g, the Easter Alleluia. So, because there's so much packed in the psalm, is what you guys are talking about, is you can use the psalm in different times of the church year and for different things, like give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his mercy endures forever. You could preach on that for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it, it seems that the 
hymnal emphasizes the happy part of the psalm or the triumphant part, which is a really important part, and that's the part you want to do on Easter. But the psalm is much more than that. The psalm is dark and then light, like Psalm 22. It starts in darkness, ends in light. So, so you touched a little bit on the EHV. John, why don't you explain to our listeners why we have the EHV? Because some people have asked me, well, which translation do you use in, at, at your church? And I said, well, Professor Brug is at our church, so obviously we're going to use the EHV. Uh, but wh- I'm just teasing, yeah. but what is the, the EHV and why do we have well, it? Well, it was done by a committee of Wells and ELS people, volunteers, and but it's intended for very wide. We have I've been on Baptist blogs and stuff telling them about it. If Zondervan had not pulled the NIV eighty four off the market, probably we wouldn't have invested the time to do it. But they pulled it off. They wouldn't let Concordia keep publishing the study Bible they had, which was based on NIV eighty four. There are issues of property. Uh, gender language, different issues of messianic prophecy. Um, the HV has a shorter text. They leave out a lot of verses that weren't in the King James because they think there weren't a part. So one of the things people appreciate about, about us is if there's early widespread support for a reading, we put it in and just say that not all manuscripts have it. So a lot of people appreciate it. Unfortunately, it's also, though we live in a spiritual world, we can't escape the fact that we're in a material world. My famous, pop, my favorite popular theologian, a lady named Madonna, said, we live in a material world. That's maybe the only correct theological observation she ever made, <laughs> but she hit, the, she hit the bullseye on that. For publishing houses today, they can't feasibly and economically produce study Bibles and things like that because some companies call for too much royalty and it, it it's not productive we had a group from hong well from east asia i'll say a couple of weeks ago that asked us if they could if we could help them print allow them to print ehv gospels to give away because they couldn't afford to give away free gospels anymore because the royalties were too high and they said can you do anything about it and we said well as long as you give them away for free we will give you a license that we will allow you to give away EHV Gospels for free. You can't sell advertising in them. You can't solicit free will donations. But if you give them away for free, we will allow you to give away up to 10000 a year for free. And check back with us if you get more than that. So the economics was a significant part, and many people don't realize that. We couldn't make a study Bible like this and have it be economically feasible if it wasn't something that we could offer to the publishing house, that we wouldn't charge them extra royalties beyond what they have. So they're, they're able to use the text for free. We, if they sell books, we get some royalty from it, but they're allowed to publish. So a lot of it is economics, unfortunately. People don't realize that. Publishing houses aren't charities, and the churches usually don't subsidize them. So it's partly to help our publishing house and others be able to share the Word of God in a lot of formats in a way that doesn't break the bank for them. Good. Uh, not to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to give Madonna some more airtime here. Yeah. Uh, 
we we li- we live in a material world and and actually this this kind of plays into uh the direction that I'm taking the uh sermon that I'd like to deliver on Easter Sunday um which is also pertinent to Psalm 118 and and to Easter and and the resurrection in general uh and that is that um I think we do a disservice to people when all we ever talk about is um as a believer, you die and go to heaven. Uh, because that that's kind of the point of Easter, isn't it? That God, when he created the world, he said, uh, this is very good. I like this uh, uh, world of, of flesh and blood humans that I made and uh, perfection and the universe and the cosmos and animals. And I want to redeem it. And, and I don't just want to have a, a spirit realm of... of soul of uh, bodiless souls floating around i want to reunite souls with bodies and uh the the material aspect that's where you get the madonna thing the material aspect um is not any kind of a sinful thing like i was just teaching the the shoreland students about uh, i'm getting ready to teach them no i already did teach them about the book of acts where uh, Paul's in Athens, and he mentions the resurrection, and immediately all of the philosophers in Athens start laughing at him, because why in the world would you want to have your body again after you've been set free? But no, that's not that's not God's point with the resurrection. Yeah, I think historically we haven't talked enough about the new heavens and the new earth. Yes. And a lot of times when you start talking about it, people say, I thought that was millennial. Oh, isn't, that, isn't that millennial? It's not really Lutheran. So we have to stress Christ redeemed body and soul. And our goal is not to die and go to heaven. That's a stop along the way. Our goal is to die, but to have our bodies and souls back together again in heaven, and which is also called the new earth, that there's a material part to it, but a material that has been purified. And since we're talking about this on Good Friday and our WLS children sang about uh, God was there on Calvary, and I brought up in the sermon that God shouldn't die, uh, but he died because he was incarnated in a in a woman who wasn't just like a virgin, really was a virgin. That's like uh, a, another Madonna, that's like another a Madonna, my, Madonna reference. I had to work for that one. Uh, but he was God in the womb, in, in a human, but he was also human enough to die. Um, but... Also with that, John, we're talking about the EHV. Let our listeners know about the harmony of the Gospels that's also available with the EHV, because that's very interesting. Well, there's two things. There's a harmony of the Gospels, which is on the four Gospels. But there's also a condensed Bible, and it's called the Story of God's Love. Uh, We have a harmony of all the Easter texts put together, which actually comes from the Story of God's Love is where it comes from. And so you can also read the, I, I don't know if it's 25% of the Bible, but it's the most important part. So you can read from the creation of the body to the final redemption of the body in this book, The Story of God's Love. And the same way that we also have a passion history, but the, the part of the story of God's love that focuses on the passion is also a passion history. What else you got, Jeremy? Oh, I just say one thing. Yeah. 
I like homework, so I'll give them one more thing. This, of is, homework. this is the third assignment you're giving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 this is uh, why I. This is why I haven't taken any summer quarter or yeah. winter homes with yeah. Professor Brood. Go on our site, which is called WartburgProject.org, all lowercase, and if you type in Easter Harmony, Wartburg Project, you'll get a harmony of Easter. In the HV. All blended into one story. Do they also have that for the Passion History? The Passion History doesn't include the Easter text. The Passion History actually has a bunch of different Passion Histories because some people want six parts, some people want five parts, Mm. some people want to hear all of the story every year, some people want to use one gospel each year. So there's a lot of choices in there. Anything else? We, you know, we were gearing up to go well over an hour with uh, Dr. Brook here, and yeah. now we've 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 just barely crossed an hour. Um, I don't know. Do you want to talk about wrestling? <laughs> no, I don't think or, so. Or Pittsburgh Steelers? Yeah. yeah. Ooh, there or, you go. Or yeah. women's basketball? I know yeah. you're a big women's basketball yeah. fan. Yeah. Uh, I because I remember sitting in the stands one day uh, at Prairie, which is kind of a fancy private school here in Racine and I was sitting up in the stands next to Professor Brug and and I texted one of my classmates who's a pastor and said do you think I'm going to get a little better place in heaven because I sat with the good doctor and talked for an entire hour of a basketball game he said I don't think that's the way it works Michael that's that's not no yeah anything else you want to bring up John because we talked about this time of the seminary and we talked about the EHV archaeology archaeology no, not really. I could, like with a summer quarter class, somebody asked me on the archaeology of the Gospels in the New Testament, how many hours can you present? And I'd say between 5 and 30, <laughs> but I wouldn't, we wouldn't run out of things to talk about if we did 30. And that's the same with anything in the Bible. If you talked about it five hours every week instead of one hour, you wouldn't run out of things to talk about. How about uh, your your Muslim classes? Because those are pretty oh, popular. Oh, I was just thinking of that. Yeah, because I, I remember because you do those all over the place, right? Well, I haven't been in recent years. I think okay. I think another professor is sort of picking up the mantle there. And there too, you had uh, different things. You had to deal with Islam as it really is, and sometimes I'll, we called it the I'll say it. The menace of Islam, menace. because that's true. But a lot of times we just called it understanding Islam. And we did have sometimes Muslims that show up for it. So you have to handle it carefully. The reason I got involved in that, particularly other than living in Israel, is the Muslim Student Association of Milwaukee at UWM invited me to come and said, we want you, we're bringing in a Muslim, a well-known Muslim debater from from um, Toronto, and the topic is going to be, who is Jesus? And, and the, he said, you know, a lot of times Christians come and they present, Muhammad was a nice prophet, Jesus was a nice prophet, and we like both of them. Let's all and, just get along. Yeah, and I, and I said, well, why did you invite me? They said, we've heard that if you come, there's going to be a controversy and that's what we want. <laughs> they said we want it to be a restrained controversy. But if we, if we, we've been told that if you come, there's going to be a contrast between 
Muhammad and Jesus. And, and what I remember is you saying in that class, and now that I, I teach the book of Acts at the high school, um, it's so true that, uh, that when you, you talked about debating uh, in front of the group and how the, there was a controversy and there got to be a lot of uh, uproar, not, not violent, but yeah. just, just a lot of vocal uproar. And uh, it re- you said it reminded you of, in the book of Acts, when Paul spoke in front of people that there was always controversy that they said this this man is how, how did that go in the book of Acts? Yeah. well it said he's the guy that i'll use the older translation he's the guy that caused trouble all over the world and they said was he guilty absolutely <laughs> because if you confront a an unbelieving culture with the gospel even more, they hate the law, but they hate the gospel more. There you go. If you confront an unbelieving culture with the gospel, there's going to be trouble. It may be subdued. It may be suppressed. It may be behind your back. Um, I was invited to go to the mosque for a while, and somebody asked me, well, why would you go to the mosque? And I said, well, that's where the Muslims are. There were about 400 Muslims at this debate. How could I get a chance to talk to 400 Muslims about Christ except by going to their place. Hmm. If we invited them to come to our place and hear about Jesus, they're not going to come for that. Hmm. If you're invited to one of their debates, they're going to go to cheer for the home team. <laughs> but you've got a chance to confront them with it. So yes, they'll, we can be tactful. We don't have to start with the hardest stuff first. With Muslims, I start from the fact of uh, we believe in sacred books. You know, start from some common ground. But you have to end up with them understanding that Jesus is not a man who became God, which is what they think we believe, Mm. but he's God who became a man because there was no other solution for sin. So uh, when Paul talked to the Athenians, he said, I see you are very religious. The King James said, I see you are very superstitious. Mm. I don't think that's the right... What he was saying is, you're searching for religious things, you have spiritual attitudes, but he didn't use a word that implied they were on the right track. Hmm. But he said, I see, he started from the common ground. I think, I can see you're really interested in this religious things. But, uh, but, now I'm going to tell you the, the real answer that you've been looking for, but you haven't found. It's so true. The, the most offensive thing is, how dare you tell me that my works don't save me? And I'm taking them then through the book of Galatians right now, and I keep talking about the law, the law, and, and you think these kids are going to be like, oh, so you're telling me that uh, the law doesn't save me, the law doesn't matter, and uh, they, they think that that's, uh, you know, some kind of um, lawlessness, but no, deep down what we really want is law. We, the, our, our sinful flesh craves to be told what to do, and... Uh, it's the gospel that's the most offensive. In the end, yeah. And that there's one way, that's unacceptable. That there's one way. I suppose there's the uh, the the old uh, point about uh, that they also, with Muslims, that they think that the Virgin Mary is a member of the Trinity. Yeah. And is that all their fault? Not exactly, because... When they came into Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic countries, what did they see on the street? Mary, Mary, Mary. 
Yeah, Mary being carried in the procession. Maybe as many Marys in the procession as crucifixes. Mm. So in a way, we laugh at that. God the Father, Mary the Mother, and their son Jesus. But we have to admit it wasn't all their fault. That That's a good point. I never thought of that. By the way, I thought of that word, uh, it, takia. Uh, it's the... Uh, Arabic notion that you do not owe the infidels the truth. In other words, you you do not have to tell uh, the you, you do not have to be honest with people outside of the Muslim faith, and they call that takia. I remember a former Muslim talking about that. Uh, that uh, just because they're saying it doesn't mean that they are being honest with you, because they have a principle of you can. You can, you can be less than honest with an infidel. Yeah, and the thing to remember well, about a Muslim like, or a Roman Catholic or anybody, when you meet a person, they say, I'm Muslim or I'm Roman Catholic. You can't assume that they know what that means or that they have, you may have more of an idea about their faith than they do. So you can't, the individual, you have to start with their personal sin and the Savior and go from there. And that's what I remember the most about your Menace of Islam class is, that you said at the end of the day, you know, you don't have to be debating about all these little details of the Quran or the Bible or whatever. At the end of the day, the best tactic is just keep presenting, here is Jesus, here is the Savior from sin. Yes, we call him God because he is, but this is the only way of eternal life. Uh, basically, uh, my big takeaway from your class was... Um, Muslims are Calvinists without the Trinity. Yeah, and we have to be careful. I don't know if you have Muslim listeners, but we have to be careful. And yet we can't, we're not doing them any favor if we tell them Islam's a nice religion, Christianity is a nice religion, and I like them both. We're not helping them. Well, I don't know if, we're the, if we have any Muslim listeners, but I did learn from Pastor Hagen, who hosts our Thirsty podcast on the Raised with Jesus podcast network is that the Raised with Jesus podcast is like the third largest Wells podcast. So that's that's a big thing. I don't yeah. know if any Muslims are yeah. doing yeah. listening to this. And I, I certainly, I would put something like understanding Islam or something on the bulletin board. I would, but I think when you get down to discuss it, we have to realize that spiritually and with all the political things that that there are difficulties that we have to face honestly. I, know. I, I, I was grabbed once, but I wasn't, I wasn't too worried about it. In London, at Hyde Park, I think he'd be taking a fair amount, a certain amount of physical risk if you spoke against Mohammed. And it's, even, it's used as a pretext against Ramadan now is time when there's maybe the most violence against Christians. Hmm. And it's striking that it comes... In, when they're leaving the services often is when the violence is. I remember John teaching a class on, on Muslims and Islam several years ago at our church. And I was thinking, this is awesome that he's got like 60 people here. But when I teach a regular Bible class, there's like 30, (laughs) but you know, uh, anything else you guys want to bring up before we bring us to a close? No, right. I'm fine. Enjoy All right. It. Well, th- well. Thanks, John, for 50 years in the ministry. That's that's an accomplishment. My goodness. Uh, thank you for everything you've done to the ch- for the church uh, at 
as a pastor, as seminary professor with the EHV, with your archaeology, with your uh, other winter rooms and summer quarters and co- pastors conferences, and that's a lot. Okay, I enjoyed being here. Yeah. So this is Pastor Zarling with Dr. John Brug and Pastor Turn Out the Lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>